All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I am Colin, the main host, and joining me for part three of our discussion of the latest Avatar comic, Imbalance, is Fran from A Healthy Dose of Fran. Welcome back for part three. Thank you very much. I am very excited to see how this concludes. And um, it's just, I'm also very sad that it's about to end. And <laughs> but yeah, so folks, if you have not listened to parts one and two, uh, highly recommend you go back and listen for the full experience. Um, if not, if you are a masochist and you just want to be like, I have no idea for context, I'm just going to throw myself into this, we'll give you a little recap. Uh, <laughs> Uh, to catch you up to speed with everything. Um, so Imbalance, as we said, it's the most recent Avatar comic that has come out. Um, this is post the end of Avatar The Last Airbender. And basically the premise is Aang and the gang have gone to Cranefish Town, a town that is developed uh, under the kind of industrious eye of Toph's father, um, and uh, Satoru, the inventor, uh, who the two of them worked together for Earth and Fire Industries, a company that was developed based on the events in The Rift, uh, one of the past comics that was uh, written by Jin Luen Yang and drawn by Guru Hiru. Uh, Imbalance, however, is written by a new writer and drawn by a new artist, um, Faith Aaron Hicks and Peter Wortman, and they kind of give us a different take as Aang and the gang have to ease bender and non-bender tensions that are starting to come to a boiling point in Cranefish Town. Um, there are, uh, you know, a, there's a business council that is adamant on trying to protect its different representatives, whether they are benders or non-benders. We have some power players in this. We have Lilling, who is a bender supremacist who wants benders to just own everything. Um, and then we have uh, Toph's father, who is like, you know, non-benders, uh, come on, like, we're... Come on, we, we, we want some rights. Uh, but what the big dis like kind of disturbing factor of all of this has been the introduction of the new factories, uh, thanks to Toph's father and Satoru, uh, which have essentially automated away all of the jobs that were normally performed by benders and non-benders alike. But the benders have really felt the pinch more so than the non-benders, which has kind of caused them to lash out. Um, Lilling, who has capitalized on this fear, is stirring up a lot of this to try to fight back and take Cranefish back, Cranefish Town back for herself. But hanging the gang, they want to see it stopped. Um, so in our last discussion, uh, we saw uh, some showdowns uh, at a bender supremacist rally um that the gang managed to sneak into and at the end of it they managed to capture lilling um as the rest of the uh kind of bender followers ran away and that brings us to the end of part two where lilling in a cage is awaiting her fate toff has made the very blunt suggestion to take her bending away Aang 
is unsure what to do. That brings us up to speed where we're at with part three. So before we get into it, again, this was written by Faith Aaron Hicks, drawn by Peter Wartman, colors by Adele Matera, and lettering by Richard Starkins and Comic Craft's Jimmy DeBettencourt. And things that we're keeping in mind throughout this series. First, the connection to the Legend of Korra. Um, as we kind of have discussed, Cranefish Town is what will eventually become Republic City. In the previous episodes, we also talked about some of the connections and parallels between Lilling's Bender supremacy and Amon's non-Bender movement, an equalist movement that took off in the first season of Korra. Uh, second is the Bender and non-Bender tensions. Uh, obviously, this is a huge crux of the conflict in this whole story as we have kind of these different factions uh, both affected by the industries that have really taken over this town and expanded it in a rate that has been uh, frankly sometimes a little too much to handle for them which leads us to the third point the pros and cons of economic and technological prosperity the previous episodes we also talked about the uh, kind of pros and cons of the kind of capitalism that is uh, you know, taking place uh, because of this. We've seen a lot of uh, industry take off, but at the same time, we would also don't have local government. And that proved to be very bad for a lot of the citizens. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think? That, do you think that catches us up uh, to where we're at? <laughs> yeah, I think it does. Although I think, I think the masochists are going to be really unhappy now because they've they've gotten everything that they they needed they're gonna they, they don't get to experience the pain of not knowing what's going on but um i'm sure they'll cope they'll, they'll find something else but uh absolutely <laughs> you know they'll they'll know to just kind of skip ahead so maybe we can put a note in in there <laughs> um so this brings us to part three um the first scene uh, that we have is right where we left off uh, from part two, back at Earth and Fire Industries at nighttime. Uh, the gang is kind of reacting to Toph's suggestions about taking Lilling's bending away. Uh, Toph says, quote, she can't lead a bunch of bender supremacists if she's not a bender anymore, end quote. And I apologize, by the way, to everyone in the past. I have not been doing quote, end quote, so I apologize for any confusion. I'm going to try to do that for this session so that we don't <laughs> lead astray with quotes here. <laughs> um, but one of the things I want to talk about first off is, again, the absolute parallel to Amon in this moment. Uh, Amon was effective because he portrayed himself as a non-bender, but when he was revealed to be a waterbender, his support vanished. He was lying. Would it be the same if Lilling had her bending taken away? Mm -hmm. So I want to get some of your thoughts on that, Fran, and kind of uh, what you were thinking as you kind of revisited this first part here. I think the thing that kind of intrigued me about this was that, especially at the start of part three, I was definitely kind of thinking that, yeah, no, of course, if we have her bending taken away, she's not going to be a threat anymore. She's going to lose all of her power in that sense. And what she was using to reign her supposed greatness over non-benders isn't going to be there anymore. But like mm -hmm. as the story continues on, kind of that perspective changes a lot. 
you start to see that that's not going to be a benefit. And especially in the parallel to Amon, I think it, if anything, it would work more to her advantage to have her bending taken away than it would mm. be to let her keep it. Because it kind of ends up giving her this sort of martyr sense. Yeah. Because mm. um, all the benders are going to see Aang taking away someone's bending, their leader's bending, and they're going to go on the attack. Similar to um, when Amon is nearly revealed by Korra at the rally with the airbenders, and he takes off his mask, and we see his scarred face. And we will start to question, wait, what, was she wrong? Like, is he actually a non-bender? And so the supporters turn against Korra again because they see her attacking someone based on something and a similar situation could possibly happen here and it end up even worse than what what it was before Mm, absolutely and it's it's so funny because we see the completely different approaches (laughs) between Aang and Korra Aang is just like I don't know let me consider (laughs) let me talk about things Korra's just like no action now you Jacques (laughs) you traitor you have lied to the people (laughs) oh man yeah so I mean again it's like it's it's great that we kind of get that um comparison uh Mm. that we see uh so as the scene continues uh katara uh she points out that lilling is just a citizen and that this decision isn't something to be taken lightly um i know you wrote you wrote down some points for this so what what were some of your thoughts about uh katara interjecting with this well i definitely kind of just generally saw her point in terms of lilling being just kind of just a normal citizen really like if we compare it to Yukon from Legend of Korra who was basically a mob boss in comparison to Liling who she she was a council I can't remember now she was a council member before wasn't she on the business council Mm -hmm. or whatever um so while she is obviously of a higher stature she is still just a normal person who just has sort of very radical ideas whereas Yukon was specifically going out of his way to do things that he knew weren't right. He wanted to do these things because he felt entitled to do them. So like in comparison to mm. what Liling is doing, Yukon is much worse. Um, and just kind of in general, the just between the two of them, it was something that slight, always kind of got to me with this part was figuring out who deserved to have their bending taken away. Was it based on their actions, how many people they hurt, their intentions? And kind of the comparison between the Ling and Yukon, it does make you question a little bit as to what Aang's decision will be from what we know of what he does much later in life as well. So it's um, just Mm. interesting to see Katara kind of bringing this point out. And Katara's definitely been a quite a bit of the voice of reason throughout this um, graphic novel series, especially for Aang kind of grounding him in in his way of thinking and acting, which I think is really good. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, again, we talked about previously how um, this series really uh, did a great job of showing 
kind of the maturing relationship mm. between Aang and Katara. And it's it's this type of thing right here. Uh, we have seen Katara be the voice of reason um, before, but it's interesting because the stakes are even higher, I would mm. say. Just because, again, there's like, there's so much, there are times where she is weighing in on certain things. Like the, the decision with Fire Lord Ozai, yes, it's, there's a lot kind of going into that. And the stakes were high then. But as we were kind of talking about before, this is something that is now also affecting... It's affecting the whole kind of face of this new society that is growing and building. And as we are kind of seeing that, what we'll see towards the end of this is that that's what Aang has to constantly be kind of thinking about and considering. And uh, Katara really serves as a great foil to Toph who is really kind of saying like take her bending away you got to do this you got to be forceful you got to be assertive you can't you can't just like you can't bend over for them but at the same time like this is like this is so much of what makes Aang such an interesting avatar and an interesting character being a non-violent practitioner he's always trying to find something that is going to harm the least amount of people um so, you know, it's interesting, too, because Suki and Sokka, they weigh in addressing kind of the potential fallout with the Bender community, um, saying that, you know, hey, if you take her bending away, what is that going to say to all of the Benders out there? They're going to fear you. I mean, I think that's essentially what they're saying. Yeah. It's like if you take their if you take Lilling's bending away, then like suddenly the Avatar goes from a peacekeeper and a bridge you know, uh, someone who is going to bridge the divide to someone who is taking a very hard stance and is an enemy to a certain amount of people. Of course, definitely. So Aang decides to talk to Lilling um, after kind of hearing everyone weigh in. Um, Lilling, at first, cool as a cucumber. Uh, she's just sitting there, cross-legged, looking very peaceful. And Aang, of course, wants to resolve things peacefully. He says, quote, it's sweet how you think you can change the world. Or sorry, she says, quote, It's sweet how you think you can change the world through talking, Avatar Aang. Not all avatars believe that, but you're special, devoted to your airbender ideals. You even refused to take the life of the tyrant Fire Lord, even as he was attempting to burn the Earth Kingdom to the ground. To which Aang responds, quote, I did spare his life, and I saved the Earth Kingdom, too. I'll find a way to resolve this conflict peacefully, too. The absolute flex of this line of just being like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, you you said that I, like, was weak during this moment. Did you forget what I did? Oh, my God. Seriously. <laughs> Literally, this whole moment, I remember reading this, kind of having a momentary pause and being like, this is every single Ang hating fan who was like, oh, I don't understand why he didn't kill Ozai. It was such a cowardly move. He was so selfish thinking of... I'm like, Liling is these fans. And Ang is saying to these fans, I'm more powerful, I'm better, and I know what I'm doing. I was able to do everything you said I couldn't do without violence. Shut your face. <laughs> um... So it, it, it's interesting too, um, you know, it, it's, it adds the question, but how far are you willing to go to protect the people you care about? Um, it, it's the same 
it's it's worded differently, mm-hmm. but it's that it's an echo of the moment from the Southern Raiders in season three, when Ang says violence is never the answer, mm-hmm. and Zuko just says, "That's true, but what are you gonna do when you face my father?" Mm-hmm. Obviously, we know how Ang resolves that, but at the time and when that episode came out. And I remember watching it. It was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. This is where this series has led. This is like the core of Aang's character being tested. Yeah. And how is he going to stick to his ideals and be able to remain true to himself? Yeah. He obviously finds a way. But now it's he's seeing a different version of it. And it's a little bit muddier. The It's not so black and white. Because you have the Fire Lord. Mm-hmm. He is evil. Like, <laughs> inexplicab- inexplicably so. Lilling is, you know, she has got Bender supremacy, but she is not a, you know, to the level of Ozai evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the thing is, like, you kind of think about it in terms of, like, prejudice in our own world. You can be prejudice mm. at one point and then you can learn to be better you can learn another way you can be taught to be better so it's something you can train yourself out of in a way whereas Ozai was just yeah. ingrained from birth it was something he solely completely believed in and wouldn't stop because that's just how the Fire Nation had been for a hundred years so there was no chance of any any of that changing. But in Lilling's case, there is the chance that she possibly could one day because it's just a prejudice. Yeah, I mean, and the thing was is that we heard in this... Um, we also heard, too, that, like, it's... Uh, or actually, no, this will... As we'll kind of see later on in this part, that uh, how Lilling and her family ended up in Cranefish mm. Town, it's... It's a very, I mean, it's, it's, it garners sympathy to a degree. I think, you know, what you were saying with Ozai is spot on. And I think because the added layer of what makes it harder for him to really find redemption is that on top of having this idea of supremacy, of being a bender, it's this idea of supremacy of royalty. Yeah. He is appointed as the Fire Lord. Yeah. And he makes himself the Phoenix King. I mean, like just the absolute ego yeah. <laughs> that comes with that is is incredibly difficult for him to, you know, to even consider him ha- finding any kind of redemption. Yeah. So that brings us back to uh, Lilling's palace. Um, uh, Rue and Yaling are sitting together. Yaling, uh, her bending has finally returned. Mm-hmm. Um the absolute kind of rage in her eyes as it returns and she starts planning, devising a plan to save their mother and kind of saying whatever it takes to get mom back. And the response from Rue when her sister, who just is so driven by this and will do anything, you kind of see Rue look unsure and, She's like, yeah, whatever, whatever it takes. The the look from her as she looks away says it all. She does not want to follow her sister and her mother down this destructive path. Um, 
so some of your thoughts on kind of this brief glimpse into this scene with them. Uh, I It definitely kind of shows the family dynamic between them just as time went on across just even just these three books we see Rue come like moving further and further away from her family like even in this frame she's kind of sat at a distance from Yaling like they aren't as close as they were at the start like when we're first introduced to them they are stood side by side they're having fun together but as each book goes on there's like a distance that actually physically comes between them as Rue starts to see and feel everything that they're doing as a non-bender herself um, and there's just kind of something that I noticed like uh, just through in this last book um, even their names actually separate her from her mother and her sister just um, mm. with Liling being obviously Liling we then have Yarling so they are so closely connected in their names and then you've got Rue it's even through names mm. they are separating her based on the fact that she is a non-bender and I know obviously naming happens at first and you don't know if you're a bender at birth but the symbolism behind that is just really interesting and it's similar to Zuko and Ozai Ozai named Azula mm. uh, Azula sorry after Azulon and kind of really kept it close to the Fire Nation side. Whereas Zuko seemed to have more of a connection to like his avatar side with Roku. So Zuko and Roku, I can't even say it now, Zuko and Roku. <laughs> um, and so it's just interesting to see that there is so much connection in how names can present a relationship. And it's just something I just noticed here alongside the physical distance that's coming between this family. Um, and just that short panel mm. was just fantastic to see just that symbolism. I love that. That's such a great point. And I mean, again, it's it's this idea that, um, you know, I think you and I both know um, as writers too, that it's just like coming up with mm. names can feel so daunting yeah. because you are like, all right, I got to come up with a name for these characters. But you're also like, oh man, like, I got to get it right. <laughs> Even though you know you can yeah. change it, it's like you still feel like you're like committing to it. And you're like, <laughs> like I, I'm going to be living in this character. And if I don't have the right name for them, it's not going to feel right in some sense. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have experienced that with my oh own my writing. God. It's always just no, like... <laughs> seriously, I've experienced that as well. But like, And it's always you kind of there just like, have I just chosen a really common name? Like, should I do something really outlandish? And I'm like, well, no, because they're just like they're just English and American. Like they're not going to have like a fantasy name, are they? Or you just kind of start question over questioning yourself, and you're like, "Oh, bugger it! I'm just going to call them Dan and hope that's all that's okay," and just kind of stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we get uh, the scene back to uh, outside Earth and Fire Industries. Um, we are we see Katara sitting by herself, holding her water skin, and Ang checks in on her. And they talk about Aang's potential decision to take away uh, Liling's bending. Aang argues that it would be a nonviolent solution to the problem. Uh, she couldn't lead benders if she mm. couldn't bend. Uh, Katara says, quote, water bending is a big part of who I am. It's also a part of my water tribe culture. 
If I lost my bending, I'd lose a piece of my identity. Taking away someone's bending might seem nonviolent when compared to other options, but is it really? You're destroying a part of someone, and that feels violent to me. Do Luling's crimes fit this punishment? Does she deserve to lose a piece of her identity? Again, the parallels to Korra Book 1, the idea of removing someone's bending as a way of removing part of their identity. We see in the first season uh, when Tano uh, loses yeah. his bending, it's, he, is a compl- he is a shell of who he was. As this cocky, braggadocious, like you know, braggadocious. <laughs> kind of jerk. I'm gonna have to use that from <laughs> now on. <laughs> Come on, guys! If you totally braggadocious, but he's this—he's a total shell yeah. of who he was, and it's this idea of you know, completely severing someone's tie to something that has been a part of them mm-hmm. for as long yeah. as they've lived. Um, so I want to kind of get uh, some of your thoughts on that, uh, especially again, this just very intimate moment between them and Katara's perspective. No, of course. And, and I totally agree with what you were saying. Like we have seen the literal effects of what taking away someone's bending can do, even to Ozai um, that we see both at the end of the series and then in the following um, graphic novels as well. He becomes weak, both physically and emotionally whilst he can still be manipulative with Zuko there's still kind of not that sense of power he's kind of lost his identity his sense of purpose Um, and again with Yukon who becomes bitter and tormented and driven by this idea of making his son's bloodbenders as well because that's all he's got to live for the idea of being able to pass that knowledge Mm. on and then even with Korra who loses her bending and this was a theory that while really quite sad is something that really makes sense in the context of the show Cora was made to believe that bending and being the avatar was all she was she was nothing else except a bender and the avatar and when she does lose the majority of her bending and goes to that cliff's edge we can see the sense of how devastating it can be that someone could possibly even be considering suicide for losing their losing something that's so integral to who they are that they no longer mm. know who they are mm-hmm. and it's just it, i really agree with what katara is saying it it is it'd be like me kind of not being able to be myself in terms of being a lesbian having to hide that having that taken away from me would be like losing a big part of myself and not being able to be who I am. So kind of from that perspective, for me, I just reading that and having that moment, it kind of made me question, I, I don't know if I agree with them taking Lilin's bending away now. When I had at the end of part two and even at the start of part three, I was like all for it. But now I'm questioning it myself, similar to what Ang is doing now as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great again. Katara is adding such a great perspective. Um, and again, I mean, like like we said, the the nonviolent way is to have her take this bending away. Aang has this newfound power. Why doesn't he use it? But it is Katara 
who helps keep him in check. Um, and it's something that isn't necessarily like, oh, well, Katara's coming out of nowhere with this. Like, no, this has been Katara since day one. Since they were at the Southern Air Temple and Aang went into the Avatar state and couldn't control himself, it was Katara who brought him out of that in the desert when he was riddled with grief after losing Appa and was about to attack the Sandbenders. It was Katara who brought him back. She's always been here, been there for him in this way. And I think that it just, it's so beautiful to see her there for him in this sense. Now addressing these very complicated problems that aren't so Mm. black and white. No, totally. Um, and of course, I mean, this, this story wastes no time. We are in the third act. Um, they are, you know, this quiet moment between Aang and Katara. And then now the business council is under attack. Uh, Toph, Katara and Aang rush to help and save Lao Bei Fang and the other non-bender council members. But, uh, cause there's like a fire at the building and they are rushing over there to go and help. But turns out yeah. it was a diversion as uh, Yelling and her bender posse approach Earth and Fire Industries. Um, a fight ensues, and we get some <laughs> prime Suki combat and clapbacks. Uh, Yelling says, remember me? And then Suki's like, sure, uh, didn't Toph beat you up? <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Uh, She's been so around good. for so long. <laughs> She's got his sass now. <laughs> Seriously. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Suki has always had that sass, though, from the, like, oh, true, from the true. day of the Kyoshi Warriors. I mean, she was always, always got that sass. <laughs> That's um, fair. That's fair. But uh, I also wanted to point out, too, the triple panel at the bottom of uh, page uh, 17 of Suki mm. blocking a rock, then swinging the shield up, and then launching a chi strike is just so badass. It is such a great way in terms of uh, articulating her fighting style through Mm. this new medium where you don't have animation to kind of connect the dots. Mm. You just have these different panels. And I thought Peter did such a great job, you know, really giving everyone some awesome moments to shine with their fighting. And, and it's interesting because I'll be interested to see what happens when they release the library edition. But I know one of the things that uh, Guru Hiru uh, talked about in the library editions of the past Avatar comics was that how difficult it was to translate combat bending and mm. otherwise to the page when it has such a recognizable style from the animation but again, mm-hmm. I think that uh, they did such a great job um, really kind of adapting it this way. Um, oh, I know, I totally agree. It just it looks like it's being animated. Like, it looks exactly like it would on the screen as well. It just, just shows his skill in his artistry. It's just it's fantastic. Uh, however, we have Yaling, who is also in her own right a badass. Uh, She handles the whole group 
and wrecks the guards uh, that were there. Um, her again, we noticed this in the in the past uh, parts as well, but her forms are so cleanly illustrated. Um, and what's fascinating too is that her style it is much more based on the traditional Hungar principles of earthbending, which is the martial arts form that uh, they used as inspiration for earthbending. Um, her stances are much more in line with those kind of traditional forms, whereas Toff's is uh, based more on uh, Southern Praying Mantis style. They actually brought in a, uh, I believe his name is Sifu uh, Manuel, uh, to do Toff's specific style of martial arts, whereas Sifu Kisu was the advisor for kind of the general Hungar translation for earthbending. Um, so, but the main differences uh, with the Hungar style, you have clean stances, linear arm and leg placements uh, versus in Southern Praying Mantis style, more angular positioning of the hands and arms in a more widened shifting stance with the legs. Uh, so we'll be sure to post uh, just some kind of reference frames uh, on our Instagram for you guys to check out. We'll kind of do like a side-by-side -side comparison. Uh, also show some uh, kind of images uh, from, uh, if I can kind of pull them and find them, uh, some of the kind of behind the scenes of Sifu Kisu and Sifu Menwell uh, working to make that happen. So we have uh, Yaling. She has defeated these guards and she is able to free her mother. Uh, the gang returns later that night to assess the damage and they quickly realize that this was a diversion. Uh, the guards uh, are really kind of bent out of shape <laughs> that they were handled so easily. Um, and we have one of the guards approach Katara uh, while, or well, actually while she's healing him, he asks if Suki can train him and his officers how to chi block. Um, mm. Again, huge moment of equality started here with consequences that will echo, echo all the way to Legend of Korra. And again, I know we plugged it in the last episode, but if you guys haven't seen it, Fran did a video all about how, uh, you know, the idea of Tylee joining the Kyoshi Warriors and how that will, could it potentially lead to the Equalists and the chi blocking that mm -hmm. we see in Legend of Korra. <laughs> and I was right. And it proves it. <laughs> and I've never been more happy in my life. <laughs> Um, so Suki is totally down for the idea. Um, oh, and yeah. she offers to offers to train them. Um, so mm. any other kind of things that you wanted to uh, touch on that before we move on to the next scene? Uh, I think what I really liked about this kind of section was just the brilliant focus on Suki as a character. And considering we all know that hashtag Suki deserves better, this series of books have really kind of done her justice. And I'm just going to say now, Suki is basically Captain America. Like her with the sword, uh, with the shield work, and just it's just it's fantastic. And now she's continuing to build on her leadership role, um, creating a chi blocker society, which you know we, we kind of know how that ends in some forms. But um, <laughs> it's just it's <laughs> it's just really cool just to see her really build up more. Uh, have them build up more of her character and 
kind of see the effects that she has on the future and also in the present as well. And it's just really interesting to see how the seeds are being set here for what happens in Legend of Korra, as well as the um, kind of the slight, not resentment, but the anger of these non-bending guards at being bested so easily by these benders that it could possibly end up setting the seeds there of resentment against benders from the non-benders which can lead to mm. the divide and later the equalists who knows i may do a video on it so um just <laughs> there we go <laughs> so uh the scene shifts back to uh lilling's palace um a, a lot of mm. this part three is it doesn't really go anywhere else we kind of shift back and forth between Lilling's Palace and Earth and Fire Industries. Uh, these are kind of mm -hmm. the main two uh, settings that everything is coming to a head with. Um, Rue is thrilled to see her mother and immediately tells her of a boat leaving that night that they all can escape on. However, Lilling refuses to leave. Earthbender stubbornness at its finest. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it's just. <laughs> no i will not go my feet are i will be i will be as steady as a rock i will stay rooted <laughs> to the ground <laughs> you shall not leave so lilling snaps at rue uh when she presses for them to leave and we get a little insight into their background lilling says quote I won't let what happened to us and Bossing say happen again. We lost everything when that city fell to the Fire Nation. Our home, our friends, everything that was ours. You remember what it was like, don't you, Rue? Fleeing the city with only the clothes on our backs. Here we see a moment again where there's a little bit of empathy now. We understand that when the fire nation came in and took over bossing say it completely upended so many people's lives especially the lives of those in the lower ring who were yeah. at the forefront of a lot of kind of the more tanks and the rest of them kind of coming yeah. in that we saw at the end of uh or at the beginning of kind of uh season three yeah. and Lilling posits that the reason the Earth Kingdom fell was because the Earth King was a non-bender. Mm. It's basically this whole incredibly, I wrote in my notes, racist, bendist rant. <laughs> basically this idea that because he was a non-bender, this is all his fault. Mm. Blaming everything on non-benders, refusing to let non-benders take away anything from her again yeah just the, her logic just make like i know obviously it's the it's the logic of someone who is just blinded by hatred but th did you forget that the earthbending daily agents joined the fire nation and kind of helped them take over their city or does she just think oh no no if the earth king the king who is just a figurehead and doesn't really do much he he is the reason for everything, not the all-powerful earthbenders who tore down the wall 
the non-bender. Well, I wonder, I, I wonder if how widespread the knowledge was that the Dai Li betrayed the Earth Kingdom. Because we oh. see the Dai Li again in Legend of Korra in season three. So I yeah. I have to think, like, does everyone know that that was what they did? Because I think that if everyone truly did know that they betrayed them, there would be no trust for them whatsoever. But mm. I would argue that they probably didn't knowing the Dai Li and knowing how they would want to kind of move things forward. Mm. I think that because that happened more at like the higher end of things that we didn't really see the Dai Li in the fire nation besides like around like royalty mm. as like Azula and Azula's kind of personal guards. We didn't really see that. And plus they were also banished. So they probably were like, okay, we were banished. We have nothing here for us we better make sure that no one thinks that we're traitors because we're not going to have anything. <laughs> okay. Ashton, no, I see your point. I take your point. That's, that is, that is interesting, especially considering how the fire nation and the earth kingdom um, worked with propaganda, because of course that there, there was no mm, war in mm-hmm. Bossing say. Exactly. There was no war in Bossing say. Um, so despite all of this, and Lilling kind of going on this rant and it being honestly terrifying from Rue's perspective. Mm. I love that we still see Rue speak up. She could have, again, just been like, okay, and gone along with it. But we are truly seeing her at kind of wit's end here. And mm. she speaks up and says, no, it wasn't the Earth King's fault. It was the Fire Nation's which is 100% correct. I mean, even if the Earth King was a bender, does anyone truly believe that he would have stopped Azula? <laughs> it's like there's no way. No, if he no looked, way that if he he looked like her mother, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I will take over the... Oh, oh no. All right, we got her. Get her now. <laughs> Put on the wig, sir. Put on the wig. <laughs> It'll be fine. I know what we're doing. Stella, you love her. And with Rue saying this, Lilling responds, the Fire Lord was only doing what any strong bender leader would do. He was exploiting a weakness. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever been more frustrated at a line than when she said this just she's she is agreeing with the man who is the reason why she no longer lives in Barsingsay and was a part of the reason for a hundred year war just it's it's crazy to think that it just kind of just shows how much of a hypocrite she is she believes Mm. in vendor supremacy in any form even when it's the reason she ended up losing power and freedom she's mm. still going to strive to prove that it is non-benders fault no matter what happened she's probably going to blame non-benders for the hundred year war next who knows oh absolutely absolutely no it's it's this idea that you know once she has a given uh like kind of group to blame it on there is no end that they will not blame things on and again yeah. it's it's a it is a it's a very kind of cognizant and prescient 
parallel to a lot of the bigotry that we see in our own world. As soon yeah. as there is a marginalized group and there is a, an individual or a community that starts sharing kind of these bigoted or prejudiced thoughts against them, suddenly anything and everything is mm. that group's fault in the eyes of the people that agree with whoever is kind of, uh, you know, purporting this or purporting yeah. this bigotry. And oh, it's, no, it's infectious. Yeah. Well, it's like, a, it always reminds me of that line from, have you ever seen the musical Wicked by any chance? Oh, yes, I have. Yeah. When um, the, the wizard says they were looking for someone to blame. So I gave them someone. It's just mm. that line always gets me because you can apply it to so many things and you can apply it to Liling in this situation. She's looking for someone to blame for what happened, but she doesn't want to blame her own kind. So she'll find someone else. And, and we get Rue with a response uh, with a red background behind her. She says, quote, is that how you see me? I'm weak because I don't have bending abilities. Lilling does not apologize. She does not say that it, that isn't how she sees her. She just explains that there is a natural order to things. Benders are powerful. Non-benders aren't. And quote, and it's best for non-benders if they recognize that. This is when we truly realize that Lilling is a monster. And she is yeah. absolutely the unquestionable villain of this series. And yeah. uh, just all of what is wrong with that. Yeah. She's proper mother of the year, isn't she, really? The last frame that we get is Rue alone in the hallway. Uh, and I love how you wrote, <laughs> thus the origin story of the original leader of the Chief Locking Ring and Army was born. I absolutely love that. It's like it's it's like classic like comic like comic book like this is how this is how you make <laughs> a true villain. It kind of like, it's it like fades. We kind of get like a bit of a black background. It kind of goes to black and white, and that caption is just in the bottom. And thus the origin story began. And then you go <laughs> on to the next frame, and it's like murder, and there's death, and <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, <laughs> uh, my goodness. So after this very somber moment, we shift back to Earth and Fire Industries. Uh, Suki yeah. is training the soon-to-be chi blockers. Uh, Sokka and Aang, uh, this time, have a chat. So Aang got to kind of talk to Katara. Now it's Sokka and Aang. Aang muses that if he had followed Toph's advice, that all of this might have been over. But Sokka reminds him that this is a movement comprised of others on the business council and it's all an entrenched issue he asks ang if he would be prepared to take all of their bending away as well to which ang says quote ah, of course not all of this the pollution the tension between benders and non-benders it started with factory machines it's the same as when the Fire Nation attacked the other nations using tanks and steamships. They never would have gone to war if they didn't have that technology.
Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to The Legend of Portalcast um, and finishing up this journey with us uh, for Imbalance. This has been a real treat uh, to be able to go on this journey with Fran and do a deep dive on one of the more recent comics. Um, so just a quick update. I know this is a longer episode and I appreciate you guys kind of listening through. I hope you're enjoying it. Um, Originally, we said in the previous episode that we were going to be doing a Patreon day on December 8th. Uh, I kind of will mention at the end, just to remind you, uh, that we are bumping that to Saturday, December 14th. Uh, Had some unexpected life things come in, and I'm going to be unable to uh, uh, host that day. But on Saturday, that day, December 14th, uh, we are going to be doing a special Patreon day. We'll be releasing the first episode of Harmonic Convergence, our uh, kind of crossover uh, fandom podcast. That's going to be one of the patron levels. We're also going to be doing a live stream watch along of an episode of Legend of Korra and Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, we would love for you to be able to join us. And what we are going to be doing ahead of that time um, with our Patreon is if you sign up to be a patron anytime before Patreon Day or on Patreon Day, you will be entered into a giveaway uh, that we're going to be doing for some sweet Avatar merch from Box Lunch. So you've seen some of the really adorable Appa socks or some of the little kind of chibi notebooks. Uh, There's a bunch of amazing stuff they have on there, but we're gonna be doing a prize pack for one of our new patrons. And this is only gonna be for folks who sign up um, on or before our Patreon day on December 14th. Uh, We also are adjusting some of our tiers. Um, I kind of did some more research talk to some more folks, and we are actually kind of bumping down our tiers. Uh, originally, we were kind of going up 1, 5, 10, and 20. We realized that we want to get more of this content to folks and make the barrier not as uh, insurmountable. So uh, we are bumping those uh, tiers down. Make sure to visit our Patreon to see what those are now. Um, but we want more folks to be able to uh, check out some of this exciting bonus content that we're doing. So to learn more about that, visit us at patreon.com slash legend of portalcast we also have a link specifically on our website uh, that you can find our patreon through it is uh, again our website is legendofportalcast.com so you can find more info there Um, and again uh, we'd love to hear from you we want to be more involved in this community and we want to be able to uh, kind of get some exciting stuff rolling uh, as we are heading into 2020 the year supposedly when we're going to be getting the Netflix live action show that is yet to be seen. I am not sure if they'll still be able to pull it off, but who knows? Maybe they will. Either way, folks, I'm super excited. Thank you so much again for taking time to listen to this and listening to this amazing imbalance series. Guys, we are going to be back next week with uh, another episode of the rise of Kiyoshi review through Beyond Portalcast, the collaboration that we're doing with Marilyn from Beyond Bending Podcast. Um, And then after that, we're going to be doing a special What If. Uh, This was uh, suggested to us by a fan, um, and we are going to be doing a kind of What If episode. What if Sokka was the Avatar? What if Toph was the Avatar? What if Bolin or Mako or 
maybe even Asami were the Avatar. So we're going to have some real fun with this. Um, it's going to be just kind of a really fun little holiday special that we're going to be doing and a really fun way to kind of close out the year. Um, so guys, thank you so much again for listening in. And uh, remember, you can find us on all those social medias, Legend of Portalcast on Facebook and Instagram, Portalcast Pod on Twitter, and our website, Legend of Portalcast. Enjoy the rest of the show, you guys. Thank you so much. I think what's interesting about this is that Ang does, he really does actually have some good points about technology and the problems it causes in their world, the pollution and all these things that are contributing to the bad aspects that are happening at current, like with the spirits and with the vendors and non-vendors. But he, it's like he only sees that side of things. He, he can't help but see the negative of it all. There's no positive mm. for him whatsoever. And I don't know if that's like the airbender in him of wanting nature to be all around and wanting peace, or if it's just his lack of knowledge of this new world from obviously his time in the iceberg as well. But I think what's great is Sokka's response after this and explaining it from non-vendor's perspective and kind of opening Ang's eyes to this other world view which he may not have had before which is kind of what this book is all about as well like this entire series is about seeing things from both perspectives absolutely uh, that's i mean that's that's the really the big point of like this scene too is that mm. you know ang as we kind of previously said in uh, past episodes he has an inherent bender bias because he has always been a bender um, he has always been able to solve problems with bending. He has not had to navigate this world without it. And for him, again, it's like seeing things. It's not necessarily saying it's a bad thing, but it's like it's the importance of surrounding yourself with people who are different. Yeah. And I think that that's like one of the best lessons from this book. And I think arguably all throughout Avatar is that it's so important to surround yourself with these different people because in the words of uncle Iroh, if you just pull knowledge from one source, it becomes rigid and stale. But if you pull knowledge from everywhere, uh, I just butchered that quote. And that's one of my favorites. But the (laughs) idea is, is that you're pulling knowledge from everywhere. And the idea that Ang has Sokka, as another perspective is so huge and he is Mm. such an important piece of this puzzle and solving this crisis in the city. Um, And, and, you know, as you were saying, kind of Ang says that technology goes against people living in harmony and that machines cause nothing but problems. What I really thought of, and I think the parallels for this, it reminds me a lot of the issues that we see in how Miyazaki's princess Mononoke Totally, um, totally, yes. When when Ashitaka goes to Iron Town, he sees immediately the destruction that is being wreaked upon the woods mm. that has caused the boars to, you know, kind of really go on a rampage that directly affected him, mm. caused him to be cursed. But he goes inside and Lady Eboshi shows him 
the lepers. And the fact that these women who had been working in brothels are now working in the factories. They are like all making kind of a living for things. They are becoming a part of a community in a way that they had never been able to before. And that is all because of the industry and what Iron Town was able to do. Very much in the same way that these factories were able to empower the non-benders but at what cost? Yeah. And I think we get a little bit of a blend of what we saw in the rift because that was also more with spirits. And we'll kind of get into that more towards the end as Aang kind of reflects on that. But I just wanted to bring that up so that we keep that in mind. Yeah. But Sokka, you know, as you were saying, he goes on, he's like, yeah, he's like pre-technological days were kind of bad for non-benders. <laughs> and, you know, he says, look how much things have changed for people like me, thanks to Satoru and his inventions. And he says, quote, and the Fire Nation didn't go to war because they invented steamships. They did it because the Fire Lord was a giant jerk who wanted to rule the world. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh. Uh, I mean that it's like you couldn't get a more quintessential soccer line. <laughs> soccer yeah, yeah. always knows the right thing to say because, but it's it's a pretty spot on <laughs> presentation of what the hundred year war was like. He was just a giant jerk who wanted to rule the world. <laughs> so Aang decides to turn in, and as Sokka waits up for Suki, they see someone in the shadows. Soon. They see that it's Rue. As Sokka asks her if she wants to say something, she responds, quote, I keep thinking about what you said to me during that fight in the cavern. How can I be okay with what my mom is doing? I love my mom and my sister, but the way they talk, the things they want to do, I'm not okay with it. But they're my only family. How could I turn against them? Suki tells her that she wouldn't be there if she didn't think that this was wrong, which is, again, solid logic from Suki. Yes. And then Sokka comes in and says, quote, I know a guy who was once in a similar situation. His dad was the worst dad ever and wanted to conquer the world. It took a while for Zuko to stand up to his father, but eventually he did. And that's one of the reasons the Hundred Year War finally ended. You have a chance to do good. Don't waste it. Mm. First off, I do want to say it's hilarious and such a it's such a subtle little writing technique, yeah. but it is so effective for him to just like go start off something. It's like I know a guy, and then immediately just like halfway through, it's just like yeah. So Zuko needs to. It's like like any any operation of like uh, you know being kind of discreet about it or yeah. like kind of doing as a what if. It's like goes out the window. Yeah, and it just ends on a big. It's like, yeah, it's one of the reasons why the Hundred Year War ended. No biggie. (laughs) But yeah, I I wanted to get some of your thoughts on Mm -hmm. this exchange because this is a huge turning point moment. We have Rue deciding to turn on her family and how you kind of read into that scene. I think the scene that really kind of got me about this scene was Suki and Sokka's conversation with Rue about it and it's one of those things it's like when people talk about being in like a toxic situation like a toxic relationship where it's just it's not good for you but 
you love this person what why would you leave them there you, you care about them so much and the same can be said for familial relationships there are some family relationships that aren't good for you that aren't helpful um and you believe that just because they're your family you can't ever turn your back against them they're your blood they're they're the people who made you how could you turn your back on them and it's something that's driven into us in terms of the society from like childhood and it's not always 100% correct and I think this is kind of what either intentionally or unintentionally Suki and Sok are, are getting at um that just because they are your family it doesn't mean that you have to agree or stand by them with everything that they say you can reevaluate the way in which they do things you can realize on your own terms that what they're doing is wrong and stand up against it instead of following along just because they're your family like that's not a justification for doing something and I think this is kind of just something that I think is really important in terms of just for us as an audience to realize as well that just because you have a connection with someone doesn't mean you have to hold on to it no matter what if it is bad for us and um, we can step back and reevaluate kind of like Zuko he had the support from like Uncle Iroh and later the gang to then step back and reevaluate the way in which the Fire Nation were treating the world. And Rue is kind of having this experience through personal prejudice from her mum and her sister against herself. But she believes she has to be loyal no matter what. And so I just I just really like that Suki and Sokka are teaching her that just because they are your family or you have a relationship with them doesn't mean that loyalty should be expected towards them they have to earn that as mm, well absolutely and i i think that's i wholeheartedly agree with all of the points that you made that was very well said and you know i i think it's tough because again that is all her family mm. and when you go through a traumatic experience of like fleeing a war zone and setting up a new life for yourselves and clearly a good life based on Lilling's <laughs> palace. <laughs> yes, they did um, so poorly after Barsing Say. Such a terrible, hard life after Barsing Say. You know, we only have three bedrooms. <laughs> the horror. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but it, it's it's still a... It's something that she has to face. And it's it's great because it's a we get a strong character moment and a choice ahead of her. And she decides to tell them that Liling is coming for them, but she asks that they don't hurt her. Um, and before she leaves, she asks Suki to teach her how to chi block. Cool. That cool. It. Yes. Um, so we start entering the kind of final part of this final mm -hmm. act. Morning at Earth and Fire Industries. Aang stands ready, looking over Cranefish Town. A few folks approach with an ostrich horse pulled cart, saying that they brought supplies 
for some of their non-Bender neighbors. We see Bender's approach. And Aang, uh, of course, we see Bender's, the kind of like Lilling and her posse Bender's approach. And Aang asks these people if they'll stand with him against their fellow Bender's. They respond, quote, I, well, I'm sorry, Avatar. You're asking too much. They turn to leave and Aang says, I'm sorry too. I love this scene so much because it's so short, but so impactful. And it is beautiful commentary on indifference and armchair activism. It's this idea that I'll throw money their way, but when it comes to inconveniencing my own life or going outside of my comfort zone to stand up for someone, ah, sorry. That's, That's asking too much. And I love that they included this scene before this fight. Um, Because, yeah, it's a commentary on so much of what we see in our own world. Mm, I totally agree. It's just, I think what's interesting is just Aang's reaction to it. Like, he is so clearly disappointed. But it's like he can kind of understand. So he feels no resentment towards them just because Aang is a good guy. But he can just still feel disappointed because, of course, you you would be disappointed in someone who clearly disagrees with with what someone is doing, but won't put themselves out to do anything about it. Mm. So true. So Lilling approaches with her posse of benders. Uh, Her demands are simple. Take all of the non-benders out of the city and leave. So simple. Yeah, so simple. (laughs) Uh, Aang, of course, refuses, and she strikes. Uh, We see the benders rush into a constructed maze outside of the factory, and it doesn't take long to see that this was all part of the plan. Um, As these guys are kind of running through, Toph begins to move walls around and then opens up a section to reveal Suki and her new chi blockers ready and waiting uh this was as you're kind of putting in your notes it's a it's a great constructed battle plan it's awesome they knew it was coming and they they made use of that that knowledge oh it was was so exciting to see because this this is the first time in a while that we've seen such a well-planned out fight since probably like sozin's comet and it's just ah it's just it was so exciting seeing everyone working together to like in such a cohesive battle Ah, it was was just beautiful. Yes. So Toph is moving the walls and then uh, some other benders uh, happen upon a barrel and Katara just like water bends and the water turns to ice to trap them. Um, And then Lilling kind of sees uh, things aren't going as well. So she sends Yaling to take down Toph and we get an excellent fight between them. Uh, the first thing Yaling does is she goes airborne and she takes Toph by surprise, just kind of clocking her across uh, the head to kind of bring her to the ground. She kind of taunts at her and it's just like, what? Like, you can't see me if I'm in the air. Uh, and then Toph is just like, okay, you want to take it to the sky? Let's go. And then Toph proceeds to Naruto run up the wall of the factory, <laughs> metal bending her feet as she is going straight up the wall. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, so good. Um, and we get a clash on the rooftop. Um, and what I love is that it they're again, it's a great not only the gang putting together this battle plan, but also from a writing and art standpoint. Mm-hmm. We see kind of this clash between Yaling and Toph. And then suddenly we go to kind of a wider shot at the factory. We see it kind of smaller down below benders breaking down the door. And then it kind of zooms in and the scene shifts. It goes into them breaking down and like it, it's just, there's, it really sets up a great back and forth in transition and what we see of how they're going to kind of handle this scene and together. Oh no, totally. It's just, it's so visually well done that it just it just feels like an episode which i think is just it's just a testament to the artwork and the writing style that it's just like watching an episode of avatar you just you kind of forget that it's actually a graphic novel just from how well it's done Mm. then uh you know as these benders have come into uh the factory Sokka is standing there and he claims that he is a regular chi blocking machine, and he does like these like punches that just like with the sound of the onomatopoeia is just. <laughs> <laughs> um, the benders hesitate, and Sokka proceeds to throw his boomerang, uh, and then they charge. <laughs> and Sokka is like, "Oh man, I was hoping they'd run away." <laughs> oh, classic. Um, and then immediately transition back to the rooftop. Uh, Yaoling is wielding a giant stone pillar. Uh, I've been playing a lot of the new Pokemon game, and she looks as she is holding and using this thing like the Pokemon <laughs> Girder, who is like this fighting type Pokemon who carries this large, like just basically steel beam oh. that he just whacks around at people. And that <laughs> this was like the visuals. I will also do an Instagram comparison between Girder yes, and Yaling at this it, moment do as it, well. Do it, do it. <laughs> oh my god, I love it. So she is clashing with Toph on the rooftop, um, who actually seems hard pressed. Um, I love that we are kind of seeing like Toph, like this is a tough mm-hmm. fight for her. Um, and it is a testament to how strong of an earthbender Yaling is. She is not oh, a pushover. Totally. Um, you know, I agree. I think what's really interesting about this is that in the show, we don't ever, especially in at least Avatar The Last Airbender, and I guess Legend of Korra as well, we don't ever actually see tough lose a fight she is constantly better than every single opponent she faces in both shows and yet here she's finally almost met her match yarling is almost just as good as tough which is leaving her feel possibly a little bit unbalanced and even we the audience are feeling the anticipation of will Toph actually win this battle and it's just it was fascinating Mm. to see because you get the urgency from it whereas in the show eventually it wasn't there as much because it's like oh Toph's the greatest earthbender in the world she's going to win but now we're like Mm. but will she Mm. Mm -hmm. and then the two scenes combine as Toph and Yaling come crashing through the roof down to where this fight is happening with Sokka and the benders who charged in and broke through the doors. And Toph grabs a metal line with her earth encased hand and then says, huh, 
metal lines. These could be useful. <laughs> ah, the choice metal bending police force uh, foreshadowing in this moment. We're like, oh yes, oh yes. It, it, it's here. I can feel it coming. We've got the foreshadowing. Oh my god, she's gonna. And it's just yeah. Oh, oh, it's so well done. There's so much about police officer tough here in this entire series and i'm living for it it's interesting too because i think some of the other ones are Mm. a little bit more subtle this one is so direct and so like like hard-fisted with it but i do not care because it's just like it is so excellent to see her have that realization in that moment um so it goes back outside Lilling realizes that the gang was prepared for them. Then Rue comes forward, confesses that she told them of the plan, and Lilling asks why she betrayed them. And Rue says, quote, I went along with your plans because no matter how horrible they were, I thought you were trying to protect us. I believed you when you said the best way to do that was to drive the non-benders out of Cranefish Town. But then Rue calls her out and says that what Lilling, you know, when Lilling said that she's done this for Rue and Yaling, she's like, no, you did this for yourself. Mm. Lilling, and then she asks her, like, call off the attack. Lilling refuses. And then Rue tries to chi block her. Lilling is not having it. And it's like, you just tried chi-blocking your own mother? You ungrateful child, I will bury you. Aang sees it and begins to fly yeah. that way. I think this here is just, it's another parallel between Zuko and Rue. In literally that Liling is set to destroy her child with her bending for dishonoring and, in her mind, betraying her just as Othai was doing to Zuko and even the power like height levels in it like Liling is towering over Rue just as Ozai did Zuko and it's just it's like seeing that moment in the show all over again but in a different way and it's just it's horrific to see what's happening to Rue in this scene mm, definitely so we go back to Toph and Yaling fighting and Yaling gets the drop on Toph because uh, Toph is like, <laughs> like, oh, like metal lines. And she's like trying to like metal bend with them. And like, clearly it's like, Toph, this was not the time to experiment. But you know, Toph, she's like, oh, this is badass. Like, I want to try this out. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, Yaling is not a pushover. Uh, she takes this moment and gets the drop on her. Then Yaling proceeds to wax poetic about how stupid Toph is to side with a bunch of non-benders. But Toph says, and by saying, you know, hey, we're better than them. But Toph responds saying, quote, I never be stupid enough to think that I'm better than him just because I'm a bender and he's not. And then <laughs> Boomerang swoops in to knock out Yaling. <laughs> And here comes Sokka saying, quote, benders may have incredible abilities, but non-benders have boomerangs. The greatest equalizer. (laughs) Oh, my my gosh. 
uh, you know, Sokka goes to Toph, asks if she's okay, and she thanks him for saving her, then proceeds to punch his arm. And it's just a testament to just the connection that they have forged over this time. And yeah. it's it's great. Like Toph just has respect for Sokka and what he can do. Yeah. And it, that was Yaling's downfall. Mm, she bought into this kind of bender supremacy and didn't realize that, you know what? Non-benders can get the drop on you just as easily. Non-benders have boomerangs. They will forever be supreme. (laughs) (laughs) So we go back to the fight outside. Lilling has almost entirely buried her daughter alive. Uh, This is so horrifying. She is like being enveloped by Earth. But then Aang airbends her out of the way and makes sure she's okay. Then Lilling returns with a massive boulder over above her. And she says, quote, It doesn't matter what you do, Avatar. My message will spread to the benders of the world. It'll eat up every part of the city as other benders stand up for their rights and drive out the non-benders. Maybe you'll win this battle, but you can't stop the coming war. Aang responds, quote, At least I can stop you. The parallels again to Legend of Korra. Mm. Lilling is, she's right. Yeah. To a degree. This isn't the end of this conflict, but Aang knows that he can at least stop this here. Mm. But Lilling knows that you cannot kill an idea that easily. Yeah. Aang proceeds to encase Lilling in ice as he goes into the Avatar state. Katara rushes forward and tells him, don't do it. But Rue is like, uh, yeah, you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Katara says, uh, quote, if you're going to take away her bending, make sure it's for the right reasons, not because it seems like an easy solution or because you're angry she's hurt people. Make sure you know why you're doing this. Mm. Aang exits the Avatar state and says that Lilling is like the pollution in the town and on the beach. He'll keep fighting it and cleaning it up every step of the way. Mm-hmm. This scene with Katara kind of stopping him, again, it is echoing all of these times before where Katara has talked Aang down out of the Avatar state from doing something that he would regret. Oh, completely. It just shows how important their relationship is, not just in terms of her stopping him, but kind of her understanding what he needs to hear to make sure he doesn't break what he believes in. It's more about him being able to keep what he believes in than her just stopping him because she thinks that's what's best. She's thinking more about him than anything. And I think that just shows how brilliant their relationship truly is. Agreed. Then we get Lilling telling Rue that she's an ungrateful child. Who is like, eh, maybe, but you're a terrible <laughs> mother. <laughs> I love how you wrote, and thus the, the Zuko parallel ends here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So now the, ba- the battle is done. The dust settles. Later, Aang, Suki, Satoru, and Toph's father meet up, and Suki reveals that she'll be staying in the city, along with the rest of the Kyoshi warriors to train the police force in the ways of chi blocking. Mm. 
Satoru asks if they really think benders and non-benders can work together after everything that happened. And Aang and Suki both say, absolutely. Mm. Suki sees Rue, who still feels bad. But Suki tells her to look towards the future. To not be bogged down by this decision because it was the right one. It's interesting to see if maybe in future we'll see what happens with Rue. Maybe she will become the leader of the Equalists, or maybe she'll become a Kyoshi warrior. It'll be interesting to see if we if we ever find out. Um, and if we don't, don't worry, I'll put it on my YouTube channel, guys. <laughs> so uh, Sokka and Aang meet inside the factory. And Aang talks about how during the events of the rift, he failed to bridge the divide between humans and spirits. Now he's got benders and non-benders, and he doesn't know how to fix it. And Sokka's like, come on, you bridge that divide with me. That's got to count for something. That's got to give you hope. And Aang's like, yeah, gives me a little bit of hope. Yeah. <laughs> no, I totally. Uh, I, I love that we've gotten loads of Sokka and Aang bonding in in this series because especially with the whole message of the entire story about benders and non-benders can work together they just have to put in the effort on both sides like soccer and andu for each other which in short terms means basically all benders and non-benders need to go on a whirlwind of adventures across the world um so you know guys get back in uh, get a sky bison or those lizard things that run across water and go go on some adventures so you'll be able to see each other's differences and all become friends and join a circle of friendship and all will be well in the world <laughs> truly then we get three days later Sokka and Katara talk about Aang's decision to not take away Lilling's bending Aang said that it was Katara's words about it being an easy solution Aang realized that it wasn't her bending that was the problem. It was her bigotry. Mm, I, totally. I think this is where we see the difference between her and Yukon. Yukon did what he did for greed, for pleasure, and for fun. And he had absolutely no chance of changing. But Liling you know better because of her prejudice and because of what she experienced. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, it's something that can be unlearned, which means she has this chance to be better. I think Aang and Katara both, in a way, realised that this was a possibility. And it's probably the reason why Aang didn't take her bending in the end, which I quite like that they've got this distinction as to what could lead to Aang taking away someone's bending. Mm. Definitely. I, I love, too, that we really kind of get that. And I, I think the big difference, too, is that at the end of the day, Lilling, during that fight, she was only really going to attack Rue. Mm. She wasn't getting it in the mix. Yakone did bloodbending on an entire courtroom. Mm. He incapacitated the Avatar, his whole jury, everyone. Yeah. And I think that that is kind of, that leads to, uh, you know, Aang thinking that it's just like, this isn't just a simple crime boss. Mm. This guy has too much power for his own hands. And it is power that not even the strongest of us can resist. 
And I think that that's also where he kind of came from with Ozai. Mm. So Ozai was this bending force. He was a great intimidator. And he knew that by taking his bending away, he would be able to kind of take away a lot of his power. Honestly, uh, t- no, I, to- I totally agree with what you just said. That it definitely works and makes sense with Aang's thinking. So Katara says how she was sad to see the Bender neighbors refuse to stand up to Liling and her forces uh, as men carry a crate at the docks and kids run by. We see Aang and Katara look on with smiles. And Aang says, quote, I've been thinking. I want to stay in Cranefish Town for now. I feel a connection to this place. It has so many problems, but if it was able to overcome them, it could become something really special. Maybe we could stay put for a while, if that's okay with you. Katara responds by saying, I agree. The city needs you. Aang says, I think it needs us. They clasp hands, and Aang says, I also think the city needs a better name. Katara says, I'll get Sokka on that right away. <laughs> Republic City, uh, baby! <laughs> and so concludes... Part three and all of imbalance. Um, I I just want to make one. I want to make one quick note on kind of this final scene here. Mm. Um, It's I think it's really interesting because I think that's this idea of them seeing the kids running by. I think this idea of like thinking about a family. Mm. Also thinking about staying put. Which, like, if you really think about it, is not something that they have done since they started on their adventure all those years ago. They have been on the move. They have constantly been going from one problem to the next. And this idea that they could be like, you know, we're going to put down roots. We're going to solve the problems here, but we're not going to (laughs) be, not have a place that we can't call home anymore and i just i love that i love that we get that and truly this is the beginning of where we see them settling down to start their family to build this city and to create this world that we see in legend of Korra. i i didn't think of that at all like it's just kind of something you don't think about like they are constantly traveling everywhere they're always on the go and yeah, no, it's it's about time that they finally find a place to make their own. And yeah, no, I love that. That That's brilliant. And it'd be interesting to see how this will continue in the next series, for sure. So first, I want to get your thoughts on this kind of final part uh, that we just went over. Any kind of final thoughts regarding what we went mm, over tonight? I, I suppose the main thing is that I just love that we've got so much set up for what we know in Legend of Korra with the chi blockers, with the police force, with Toph as police chief. Um, just there are so many threads that connect in just even just in this part alone to the future. Even with Aang's own personal responsibility of being the avatar and deciding who gets to kind of be saved in a way and who is beyond saving this was like his first official test since the big showdown that was the series 
this is his first big one since then. That is something that's going to define his adult life and define him as an avatar. Um, and it's just, it's fascinating to see. And just his and Katara's relationship as well, I feel really, feel is really shown to be strong and solid in this part as well. That the sort of just the general care that they have for each other and how they support each other is just, it's brilliant. And I, I think that's what I'm really taking away from this. The ties to Legend of Korra, Ang's responsibility as Avatar and his relationship with Katara. Definitely. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I love that we kind of get a lot of these kind of points coming to a head that they, you know, set up in the previous parts. Um, but I loved how they kind of realized they didn't need to go to too many places. It was Lilling's Palace and Earth and Fire Industries. The settings were simple. They explored some different spots and everything in the previous parts. But for this one, they understood that they were entering the final act of this story. They kept it really tight. They had great battles. They had quiet, reflective moments. Aang had great conversations with Sokka, Toph, and Katara. We had great Suki moments. We had great villain moments. And it just was such a great way to wrap up this whole comic and also really showcase all the parts that made it great. Um, so I want to kind of get, secondly, your thoughts on Imbalance as a series. We have made it to the end here. We did it. Uh, I kind of want to get some of your just final thoughts now that we are here at the end of this mm. uh, three-part series. Well, I definitely have to say, I think, considering I know that there were not many people in the Avatar fandom were the biggest fans of Imbalance. I can't remember the reasons why, but I know that there were some people who weren't a fan of it. For me, Imbalance, I think, is my favourite of the Avatar The Last Airbender graphic novels. Not just because it sets up what we know of Legend of Korra, but every character in just these three books has an arc and a change and something about them that just shows them growing from what we know of them in the show more than I felt any of the other books presented. And even though we don't have Zuko in this book, I feel like the relationship between Team Avatar here, firstly, finally includes Suki, um, but it just shows the continued building of that relationship and how it's helping them as individuals grow as people from those goofy kids who had to save the world to these teenagers who are learning who they are as people and I think that's kind of what makes Imbalance brilliant not only the story and the conflict but the characters and who they are and who they will be well said uh I I really think that um I I'm kind of right there with you in terms of it being my new favorite. I I might change my tune once we do a deep dive into the search because that one was my favorite up to that point because I loved what we got in terms of uncovering such a big mystery of the show and a lot of the character growth that we saw from Zuko and Azula. But I love that this was something so different. Um, this felt so unique, but still at its core, very much Avatar The Last Airbender. 
Um, I love that we got, as you said, great connecting points to Legend of Korra. Um, all the characters, as you said, great arcs. I mean, the the level of accuracy that Faith Aaron Hicks managed to capture with all of the characters in terms of their voice was so spot on. Sokka felt exactly like Sokka. Toph, I mean, very much Toph. Aang and Katara, and also giving more life to Suki as well, um, which I loved because, you know, hashtag Suki deserves better. I think Suki, Suki got some better in this in this uh in this comic and i i love what they did in terms of including her in the story and it was just so impressive i am so impressed with what faith did with the writing all of the different themes everything that is you know very much relevant to where we are at in the world with a lot of terms of examining bigotry examining tensions between different groups how to start a conversation between those groups and how important it is to surround yourself with people who have different perspectives and views on life because that is what truly is able to solve this conflict in the end rue considers a different perspective turns against her mother sokka lends Aang his perspective, Katara lends her perspective, and leads Aang down this path that isn't just the easy solution, but something that is going to solve the problem now, but leads him to realize that he needs to be there to solve the problems that are going to continue to be there. So, to wrap things out in its entirety, because this is the recent, most recent Avatar comic, I want to get your hopes, predictions, and thoughts for any future stories that if we had Faith and Peter come back to. Okay. Right. First one, definitely. Exploration of Saturo and Toph's possible romantic relationship. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Toro will be canon or I, I, I will be very <laughs> upset. And Toka fans, we're going to start a fan war. I'm calling it. Um, <laughs> what I also kind of want to see <laughs> is, especially from what we know of Legend of Korra, is that Republic City was noted to be created by Zuko and Aang. And obviously Zuko hasn't joined them in Cranefish Town yet, so... I would be interested for him to come to Cranefish Town and whatever name, I'm guessing probably Republic City at that point, or maybe that'll come later, and have him and Aang kind of figure out where to go with that, use his governing abilities and Aang's peace abilities to create the city of Republic. Uh, Oh, God, if that ends up being the practice thing we go with, I'm really upset. Um, and Just get away it, from those focus groups. I know, I know. I've influenced them now. I've made a terrible, terrible mistake. Um, <laughs> but um, just general, further, like, character building, character arcs. Um, I'd love to see Toff's metal school, uh, metal bending school come to Republic City. Maybe have her train them to be police officers. Who knows? Um, and more Suki, more Suki. That that's mm. that's my main thing. I want more Suki. 
Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, agreed on many of those points. Um, I feel like what I'm also looking forward to kind of expands on what you were saying. Uh, also very excited to see how Zuko is a part of this because what we heard was that Aang and Zuko built Republic City together. So what this means is that, I mean, Zuko has a very big part in this because it's not only Republic City, it's the United, like, United Nations of, of United Republic of Nations, I believe it is. I always forget. United I Forces, United I know, is the like, name of the military yeah, force. Yeah, I can't remember the yeah. name of the thing. Oh. I think it's the United Republic of Nations. Yeah, um, like that, yeah, that basically is kind of like this combination of all the different nations mm. and obviously including some of the uh, colonies that we saw in like the promise, uh, the first uh, kind of avatar graphic novel, how that's going to all be tied in together. Um, uh, and, and, you know, like you said, how they're going to kind of mix their different styles to create this new city. Um, and then also seeing where things go in terms of like the gang becoming active parts of this city and its development, but also living their lives. The idea of the gang settling down um, because again, it may not be as I'm just curious to see like I, what I would love for them to do is yes, I would love to see Zuko. I'd love to see kind of where things go, but I would love to see a time jump. I would love to see them like five, 10 years after the events of imbalance where they are a little bit older, there is more going on and that we really kind of get something that does feel so fresh and new because I think it'd be cool to kind of see the rapid change in Republic city, how things are going to change. Are we going to start to see skyscrapers going up? Things like that. I mean, so much of that we have yet to see and I'm very excited to see. I really hope they bring back, faith and peter because they were so excellent with this um i would love to see them get their fair share of a run like gene luen yang and guru hero did Mm. because Mm. i think they really kind of hit their stride in terms of being able to kind of write the stories that they wanted to write um so i'd love to see faith and peter have that opportunity as well oh totally agree well folks That brings us to the end. We appreciate it. I know this is a little bit longer of an episode, but we really hope that you have enjoyed this deep dive into the latest Avatar comic series, Imbalance. Um, We may come back and do like a little addendum episode once the library edition comes out because I always love kind of talking about kind of the liner notes that we get from the writer and the artists and because it's always new insights. Um, But... uh, Really appreciate you all uh, kind of joining us for this journey. Fran, thank you so much for joining me for this journey and being such a wonderful co-host uh, as we dove into this. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. It is, it's been fantastic as always, my good friend. <laughs> so, Fran, can you tell listeners about how they can find you and what social medias they can follow? I can indeed. So, um, as I've been calling out every so often throughout the show, um, you can find me on YouTube at A Healthy Dose of Fran, where I post every Sunday on such things as Avatar The Last Airbender, Percy Jackson, and writing studies. So if you want to know why Asami should have been an equalist or why the Avatar re- how the Avatar reincarnation system works, then go check me out there. Uh, if you want to find me on Instagram, you can search A Healthy Dose of Fran there as well. 
or on Twitter, you can search FrancescaMC95 because I still have not gone around to changing my Twitter handle. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can check me out on all of those places there, but I am predominantly active on Instagram and YouTube. All right. And of course, you can find Legend of Portalcast at Legend of Portalcast on Facebook and Instagram, Portalcast Pod on Twitter. And you can visit our website, legendofportalcast.com. Um, to uh, see all of the episodes um, and uh, check out parts one and two in case you haven't. Anytime you want to go back and listen to all of them. Uh, be sure to follow us on Instagram too because I that's where I'm going to be posting the majority of our content in terms of like the stuff that I was talking about in terms of comparisons, visual things like that. And I want to do a quick shout out to uh, the Instagram community because over the course of the past two weeks, we have seen such an amazing response to uh, this imbalance series into all the posts that have been associated with it. We have been seeing so many likes and so much like feedback and engagement. And it seriously means the world. You guys, it is just so special to see so many people engaging with that. And so pe- so many people excited about that. And I just want to like really thank all the folks who have uh, joined on to uh, start following us. Um, And then, of course, the last plug to kind of do is our Patreon. Um, So originally, we were going to be doing a Sunday, December 8th Patreon day, but we unfortunately have to bump that because of life and busyness. Uh, But we are going to be bumping that to Saturday, December 14th uh, is when we are going to be doing our new uh, kind of uh, Patreon day. We're going to be doing a live stream. That's going to be featuring a watch along of an episode of Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra. We're also going to be releasing the first episode of Harmonic Convergence, our uh, kind of side podcast that is going to uh, be talking about all kinds of crossover stuff uh, between different fandoms in Avatar. And to uh, and we're going to be releasing those uh, for free to everyone to get a sense of what it is like to be a Patreon or to be a Patreon to be a patron for our Patreon. <laughs> um, so to learn more about that, visit us at patreon.com slash legend of portal cast. Thank you all so much for your continued support. Thank you so much to Fran for joining me. Thank you to faith, Aaron Hicks and Peter Wartman for making an incredible graphic novel series here. And of course, until next time, let us leave. <laughs>